Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. This is Margie O'Mara, Democratic Pollster. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican Pollster. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So I'm so excited that you're back, Kristen. We have so many polls to catch up on. It was tough to even decide what to include because there have been basically like three weeks of polls to go through, which is kind of insane. Um, but you're back and this is our, I'm so excited for us to go over this. And then next week, not this week, but next week, probably we're going to have a big announcement. So we got lots of exciting things going on. Um, but first, we sure do. Tell, tell us a little bit about the top lines. You're back from your trip and there's all kinds of new stuff that we want to talk about. Back from the trip, so from Sweet Home Alabama to the other side of the planet, literally, this is going to be a globe-trotting edition of the pollsters. Um, we'll start off by talking a little bit about Trump's job approval. It's back above 40. We'll dig into the two big stories of the week, which is the NFL and the tax reform stories. Then there were some elections in Germany. I took a trip to China. We'll go a little international. And then what you watch on TV actually changes how you might view certain professions. Is CSI, the pollsters, coming to you soon? Uh, we will dive into some really fascinating Pew data. But first, the polls of the week bring us stateside to Alabama and Virginia. Margie, did the pollsters get it right in Alabama? Yeah, the pollsters got, you know, it, it, all those winners and losers lists from Alabama where there was a big election yesterday. We're recording this on Wednesday. Um, I don't know how many of them said that the pollsters really can take about, this is always you know, this is a little bit of our pet peeve. When pollsters get it wrong by a couple points, everyone goes crazy. When pollsters basically tell you what's going to happen and everyone seems fairly well prepared, as they were in this case, for more to beat strange um, in the election on Tuesday. And, and that's what the polling averages showed. And, and that's where they ended up. Um, you know, th these kinds of sort of special election runoff elections are notoriously hard to gauge, but this one, you know, seemed to call it, you know, pretty much on the nose. I mean, were you surprised when you looked at the numbers? No. So I would like to give a high five to my buddies at Optimus, which is a Republican analytics firm, uh, friend of friend of, of the show, I suppose, uh, which we need to get them on the show at some point. I'm now realizing I don't think we've had them on. Um, I feel they like were we have one had of the them on. I don't, I don't think we have. Mm, well, we've Scott said nice things Ryan about them. them. 
Well, I, I'm sure I've said nice things about them, but we'll have to get them on. Um, so, yeah, with they they crushed it. A bunch of pollsters, a bunch of public pollsters, I should say, crushed this one. But something that was a little frustrating. So there was a memo put out by the Luther Strange campaign um, that kept using this phrase fake polls to describe all of the public polls that showed Roy Moore up by 10 or so points. Um, and that ticks me off because fake polls is like, what Research 2000 did for Daily Coast back in the day, where you are actually just making up a poll, that's a fake poll. A fake poll is not a poll right, you don't or like that's actually the, accurate, the but gosh, it doesn't feed your narrative. Like, this stuff is, that like, that's such garbage. Um, and look, it is not these public pollsters who got it right. It is not their fault that your internal pollster, whoever he or she was, like, got it totally wrong. Because Here's the other thing. I mean, you had millions upon millions of dollars of Republican donor money that went into the the strange race, you know, by by like backing him and say, okay, this is this is the Republican establishment's guy. And you only spend that much money if you actually think there's a chance at winning, which means you must have some data points that show it's close. And that was one thing that kept getting told, you know, leaked to Politico reporters or oh, we're going to put out this campaign memo or like, oh, the Chamber of Commerce totally has some polling that shows this worked or, you know, this super PAC has some internal polling that totally shows this can work. And so it seems like all the public pollsters pretty much got it right. But a lot of the internal pollsters either got it wrong or they got it right, but their findings were being blatantly misrepresented by their end client to the media. Um, neither of which is a great situation. And it's also kind of odd because we normally say, look, the internal polls, typically they're more well-funded. They can do better stuff. They can call off of better samples, blah, blah, blah. Whereas the public polls are usually done more on the cheap. They're IVR, you know, they're not perfect. But in this case, the public pollsters got it right. And all of the rumblings about what the private Yeah, I mean, the other thing too, that when you see these memos that say, yeah. Right. I mean, the the other thing when I see all these memos, if you have a memo that says, and this is why people sometimes get a little wary when they see memos from a campaign or from a polling shop saying, well, our polls show something different, is you can get a short-term jolt by saying, yeah, but our poll shows that this other poll is wrong, or our poll shows it's closer than you think, or farther away than you, you know, farther apart than you think, is you have to you know, you have to work at this thing. You have to have lunch in this town again, right? If your poll is, if you make a, a case about your polling that ends up being wrong and you make it very strongly right before the election, um, y- you end up, you know, jeopardizing in the long term your credibility as a pollster, your credibility as a comms person, even though, you know, everyone's trying to spin the media or spin donors or spin activists in the tail end of a campaign, you still ultimately need to have an eye toward making sure your reputation and I, I'm not saying that's true for the you know that's not not what they did in this memo which I haven't read but in general one has to really think about that so you are not you know hurting your reputation as you talk about polling for the next campaign where you know people are going to remember hey you told me that your polls showed something else you know in that last campaign yeah so there's also the Virginia race um, that is coming up in, it's, gosh, about like a month and a half. Um, 
The polls at the moment showing Northam still up uh, by uh, the average at the moment, Northam up by four and a half, um, which is one of those sorts of margins where if you're the Northam campaign, you're probably not sleeping great at night. Like That's one of those kinds of margins where it seems like everything's fine, but if turnout's a little different than you're expecting or if... For whatever reason, there's this, you know, surge of conservative, you know, excitement or whatever that black and white four points out pretty quick. Um, Margie, what's your take on what's going on in Virginia? Well, I mean, look, yeah, when you see these public polls, that they consistently show Northam with a little bit of an edge. But, you know, you're talking about uh, sort of mercurial, lower turnout, odd year election where turnout may be, you know, a little bit harder to predict, especially in the public polling. And ultimately, this, you know, it, it looks fairly evenly divided in the big picture, right? This is still, you know, there's still a lot of um, runway left here uh, in terms of time for people to communicate and and uh, get their voters to the polls. You know, the one thing that I would caution folks as they look at some of this public polling, because everyone's going to want to see this race through the lens of Trump and what's Gillespie doing vis-a-vis Trump and, uh, you know, are people going to be so angry at Trump that they're going to, you know, turn out? Uh, for the Democratic candidate or people can be turned out from politics altogether. Is this a bellwether for where the midterms are going? There's a lot of pressure on this race to figuring out how does the political climate in the country uh, reflected in what happens in Virginia and what does that mean for everything else that comes after it? And that's all well and good. It's important to not to be mindful of how much we want to know the answer to that far in advance of when we're actually going to be able to know, especially when we look at some of these questions in the public polling, like how important of a factor is Trump in your vote, which is pretty vague. I think we've talked about this before. People are going to continue to ask about it. It's vague. We don't really know what that means. And we don't know if we're asking, you know, people, are they changing their party? Are they voting differently? Are they actually staying home or turning out or are more enthusiastic than they were before because of Trump? It doesn't really quite say, quite ask people what that means and um, how that's different from how they may normally vote. I mean, you may have, you know, strong Democrats who vote in every election. They vote for the Democrat every election. You may ask them how important is Trump to your vote? And they may say, very important because I'm really angry at Trump. But is that really like a sign that Trump has changed that race for if you're talking about a strong Democrat who's already a, a strong Democratic voter who's angry at Trump but has always voted Democratic, how how do we look at that answer when they say, you know, Trump is really affecting my vote? That doesn't ultimately change the outcome of the race. So some of this stuff is a little bit hard to ask people to self-report and then figure out what do we do with that information and ma- make a broader case of what's happening nationwide. Right. And, you know, there's also there are these uh, issues that are happening that on the one sense, you know, may seem, you know, more related to kind of Trump and the national political scene, um, but that kind of correlate interestingly with results of how people want to vote in this Virginia race. So, you know, you never know what what new raw nerve uh, Trump is going to dig a fingernail into and like cause a firestorm and, and shift the ground underneath you. I mean, so take, for instance, there's a new poll from Christopher Newport University. Um, one of the questions they ask is about the Confederate statues and monuments. And they say, do you support or oppose removing Confederate statues and monuments from public places? And a majority of Virginia voters say they oppose removing these statues. 
Um, and if you oppose, you know, for Gillespie voters, it's like 86% opposed. Whereas for Northam voters, even one out of four Northam voters opposes uh, removing these statues. Now, when I think of like the political career of Ed Gillespie, like Confederate statue defense is not one of the first 50 things that comes to mind. Right. But if all of a sudden like Trump is, you know, pushing down on this nerve again as we approach uh, the gubernatorial race, does that one in four Northam voters who, you know, doesn't like the idea of taking away these statues suddenly think, you know what, Northam, maybe he's fine and maybe I'm okay with how um, McAuliffe's done as governor, but I'm just sick of these liberals telling me we got to get rid of these statues, so I'm voting for Gillespie. Like, you don't know. These are the sorts of things that, you know, we don't know what the political climate's going to look like six weeks from now. And if you ask somebody, oh, well, you know, how much of a factor in your vote is the Confederate statue issue? Like, you're not going to get, I think, a good, honest answer, um, especially because things can change so much in six weeks. But that was just one of the crosstabs that, like, really stuck out to me um, as the sort right. of thing where if that issue, like, surges again to the forefront, you know, what's Northam going to do to hang on to that one in four of his voters who holds this position that is at odds with where most sort of Democratic voters or most Democratic leaders come down on the issue. Right. And if you're a hardcore pro-Confederate statue voter, you may not even want to vote in this general election. You may be upset about how the Republican primary turned out and you may stay home. And that that kind of thing is not something that can be reflected easily in the public poll. Right. And that's not to disparage any particular public poll. That's just the limitation of, you know, something where you're really just trying to get a, a quick snapshot of where things are. Yep. So, well, let's take a, let's take a look at Trump. the snapshot of where <laughs> things are nationally. Speaking of Trump, um, his job approval, as I feel like we have reported so, so, so many weeks starting around the beginning of the summer is at 40%. In fact, as of press time, uh, it is exactly 40.0% in the Huffington Post pollster uh, average. And, you know, the the two big issues we've got going this week, um, you've got the NFL story, you've got tax reform. Um, tax reform kind of coming on the heels of the next round of the death of zombie Ahaka slash zombie Bicker 2 electric boogaloo slash what was it this last time it was Graham Cassidy it's got like a new name every yep. time but you know this is now it has died multiple deaths um right. and this has Same I think bill, a lot different of day. yeah or yeah it, it you know different variations variations on a theme um so I think the question is you know do you how are how's Trump's base thinking about him how are they thinking about things like this NFL issue how are they thinking about things like this tax reform issue um and do things like this NFL versus Trump issue, you know, sometimes when, when Donald Trump does these things and kind of like picks these fights and, you know, goes on a tweet rampage um, on something that is kind of a culture war focus rather than something that's like healthcare or tax reform or the stuff that the folks on the Hill would rather focus on. People say, oh, well, he's Puerto doing Rico. that just to like, yeah, or Puerto Rico, you know, something that that genuinely really deserves our attention. Not, and by the way, I don't mean that to say that, like, the things that the folks who are kneeling are standing for in terms of, you know, police treatment of African Americans, that that doesn't deserve attention, or that, you know, frankly, no, but patriotism players, or standing for that doesn't really, but, yeah. 
Right, right, right. Like, does it rise to the level? Did it this week have to rise to the level of taking over all of, you know, the like North Korea, um, which is an issue that's been on the brain for me since being in China for two weeks. Um, you know, these are the sorts of things where it's like, why, why this week, Trump? Why this week? And I think we still don't have a good answer to the question of like, is it because he just woke up one day and like saw something on Fox and Friends and decided, boom, let's make this an issue? Or is this, you know... 12 dimensional chess where he'd really rather not talk about the failure of healthcare. So let's talk about the NFL. Um, I'm still not sure I have an answer to where I think that comes down. Yeah. Or he, you know, or does he just enjoy, you know, the, the back and forth? This is, you know, he likes getting exciting press and, you know, doesn't really like getting into the weeds and in terms of policy debate. So he'd much rather like pick a Twitter fight with somebody than, you know, try to figure out the best, um, the best of a variety of, uh, you know, healthcare policy options. Um, it, you know, and there was a quote today, there was a story, I think it was in Politico, forgive me if, if it wasn't, um, saying that, you know, people say that he says behind closed doors, oh, uh, you know, I, I, I'm winning the culture war. The we're I'm trying to, you know, do a culture war on behalf of my base and I, I'm winning it, right? That he sees this as, you know, this is deliberate. It's not like he's just accidentally, you know, happening upon these things. Like he, he's very much knows that this is, you know, this is a, a culture war kind of meme that he's on, whatever it is in each individual week. And just looking for something that gets people riled up, um, you know, that's something that's deliberate. Now, but quite, you know, the result of this is, he has a ceiling, and a ceiling is 40%. Even if it's not 37% approval, it's 40%. It's not, you know, it's not something that is improving in any real way. You know, a meeting or two with Democratic leaders simply doesn't change that. We didn't have a show that, you know, back when the week when those things happened where, you know, there was no real cost attached for him among Republicans for having those meetings. Um, and he's still, you know, by the same token, he's still seen as, as divisive. That's what the new Washington Post ABC poll shows. You know, a clear majority of or two thirds of independents feel he's done more to divide the country. The, there was an open end um, that the Washington Post asked, what's the what are the top 20 words? You know, what word would you use to describe Trump? And the first one is strong, determined or bold. But then, you know, most of the top 10 is negative. Um, you know, pretty, pretty negative, like buffoon, clown, Nazi, racist, ignorant, horrible. I mean, you know, not good words here. That's in the top 10. So, you know, the, the result of him, um, be, you know, fanning the flames here with all these various hot button issues is that, you know, he pays a personal cost that you saw it in the focus groups that Oprah and Frank Lenz did, you know, in 60 minutes. Yeah. And then, you know, people are, so get, that, people are getting the, the message, way, you know? I, I, so I just have to say it was very funny. I, so I came back from this China trip, which I'll talk about a little bit later, but like I came back late on Friday night and I landed. And of course, like it's a 12 hour time difference. It does not get more dramatic and abrupt than that. And so I like, I land and it feels like 7.30 PM or it feels like 7.30 AM, but it's actually 7.30 PM. And I kind of like sleep normally that first night, but then like the second day I kind of start feeling off. And like, I spent Sunday on the couch just feeling like I did not know what dimension I was in. And so I'm like halfway kind of, you know, like flipping through channels. And my husband wanted to watch the new Star Trek show, uh, which was going to be on CBS. And so like we flip over to CBS and he and I'm like, I'm like, wait a minute. That looks like a focus group. <laughs> like I've seen tables that look like that. Like 
what is that Oprah moderating? Like I actually thought I was hallucinating it for a little bit. <laughs> and then I noticed like then like Frank Luntz's, you know, like mug pops up on the face. I'm like, okay, I maybe really am hallucinating this. But for those of you who didn't watch this, um, it's, you know, Oprah sits down around a conference table and moderates a focus group of voters, but she does something that I frankly have not done in the Trump presidency era, and that is bring opinionated people from different sides of the aisle into the room to like duke it out. Because I think from, I would say almost any, every right. one of my clients that I have been doing work for, that focus group, like while super interesting perhaps to folks watching 60 Minutes, like does not yield in my opinion, the sort of stuff that like any of my clients would have been looking for. Like it was just like, let's just like watch a Facebook thread gone awry, but like live on ice. <laughs> so right. You know, right. Cause you could see people team. physically stiffen up. You could see people, you know, just shake their head and get very, very upset. Not just upset thinking about, I mean, you had Clinton voters very upset thinking about Trump, right? You had a couple kind of breakdown thinking about the repercussions for them personally. But then you had Trump voters really stiffen when they're ready to hear what a Clinton voter is going to say about a Trump voter. And with even the question being, how would you describe a Trump voter? And then, you know, the Trump voters are there like, okay, come on, give it to me. You know, what are you going to say? I mean, it is, it, you know, normally if you have a kind of mixed group like this, you'd have people who are a little bit more swing. Now, the ones that you do for the press are probably more likely to have this, you know, DNR together, but still you want, you want to remove typically if you want to get people to be open and, and speak honestly as much as possible, you want to have, take out the people who are the most extreme and the most vocal and have people who are a little bit more mushy in the middle. Now that said, I thought the response were incredibly informed and articulate about why they supported the candidate that they supported, um, in a way that I thought, you know, was, was quite interesting. Yeah, it certainly was was very useful um, as a window into the way that these conversations happen between both sides. But like I've also had many focus groups that I've done over the last couple of months where the, they become the most interesting once everybody in the room kind of figures out that they don't need to be on their guard anymore. That like if they come out and say that they think the Russia investigation is all a bunch of fake news garbage – and then everybody in the room kind of like nods like, yeah, I kind of think you're right. Then all of a sudden they're like, okay, I thought somebody was going to bite my head off for saying that. And then like they feel more comfortable and then everybody's more honest through the rest of the group. Now, on the other hand, you know, does that reflect, okay, now these people all get that they're in a room with fellow Trump voters or fellow Clinton voters. Now do they begin right. like performing the other direction? I mean, that's always something you've got to, you know, worry about too. But I think focus groups are better when people are relaxed and just feel like they can kind of like let their freak flag fly a little bit, like let it all out. And if you are in a room where you're worried, I mean, there's some people, if you get really opinionated respondents, they'll love the clash. They'll love trying to persuade the person on the other side of the table. But if you really want to get, you know, the swing voter who's not hyper vocal, but you want to dig into what they think, putting them in a safe space uh, sometimes can be the right strategy. Oh, and also we should add that 
you know, how do people feel being in focus group with Oprah? I mean, I don't know if I'd be so relaxed sort of bearing all in front of Oprah. I mean, that's, you know, that in and of itself is a thing, but maybe that's my democratic side showing. We're like, it's Oprah, you know, like, <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't think it's just a democratic thing. How can you possibly thing? contain your enthusiasm? <laughs> I'd, I'd, I would so. argue that that is not just a partisan thing, Margie. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how I feel anyway about Oprah. So, uh, well, you know, of course, so, Margie, this is why you and I, when we go over. into focus groups, this is why when you and I go into moderate focus groups, we have to put on our disguises, like wear our glasses, you know, we, we have to go That's through right. the whole, <laughs> wear the fake mustache, That's nobody right. knows who we are. I, yes, I, I always say I'm from New Jersey, which I am technically, just not currently. Because <laughs> yes, when people say, ask, no, like, hi, what's your I'm career? It's like, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm from Virginia and I'm just a focus group moderator. This is all I do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You've exactly. definitely never seen us on television. We're not that person. I promise. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, okay. So then, so going to like the more nuts and bolts of what's up ahead and how does this really play out for Trump? Um, so there's tax reform, obviously, that's the next, you know, that's next up on the list of things that Congress is going to take up and, and work on. And what's fascinating about this, so they, they just released a, a plan just, you know, not very long ago, yet there's a variety of polling. I just had a chuckle looking at this and, and it's okay. It doesn't, it's not like I fault the pollsters because it's still, you know, it's an important, it's measuring an important thing, but you had a couple outlets, Washington Post and CNN, two polls where they say, okay, what do you think is going to happen with this, you know, Trump <laughs> tax reform of a thing that really nobody has, very few voters are going to have any sort of idea w what they're responding to. It's like, I'm thinking of a number. Do you think that number is good for you or bad for you? I mean, it's just completely, you know, you're, you're just measuring what people think of Trump rather than any specific plan. Yeah. And I mean, there was a, uh, this morning, um, my friend Ashley, Ashley Strong, who does press uh, for Speaker Ryan's office, you know, she retweeted, I think it was the CNN poll that showed, you know, huge majorities of Americans that think that the current tax system is broken and is in need of reform. Um, and there was a like a tweet and, and like I retweeted her because, hey, it's a poll finding like, you know, I it's from a credible source. I'll, I retweet polls. Um, but then there was a response. And I, I forget if this was. Stephen Shepard or Jake Sherman, who is one of our friends from Politico, responded to her tweet and was like, this is a useless poll number because everybody hates the tax code. But I kind of disagree. Like, I think it doesn't necessarily mean that voters will love the specific plan that Trump has laid out. But I think people, you are a little more likely to accept, you know, changes to something that you think is broken then changes to something that you think is already kind of working well, and why do we need to noodle with it? So, like, point halfway taken, but I don't think that it's useless to poll on. I think the word used was, this is useless. And I don't think it's useless to gauge people's current level of frustration with either the level of their taxation or the complexity in the tax code. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, I think, you know, the other, and that's separate from what do you think about this plan that you don't know anything about? What do you assume right. it's going to do? Which <laughs> I, I don't, and, and it's not that that's useless either. It's just limited. We just need to be mindful of its limitations. You know, what I did see in a couple polls, and I think Morning Consult showed this, but the new Washington Post poll shows it too, you know, some bipartisan agreement that, um, 
you know, that the tax system favors the wealthy, right? That there's actually some agreement there. Um, now, the downside is you have, you know, fo- some disagreement over whether th- what this sort of new tax plan is going to do is that can actually solve this problem um, where the CNN poll shows that actually, pe- you know, um, a, a plurality feel that taxes for the wealthy are going to go down, a plurality feel taxes paid by the middle class are going to go up. Um, that's consistent with some of the other public polling. There's just the sense that, you know, the wealthy are going to get off easy. I'm going to get, uh, or people like me are going to n- not fare well from this plan. That's probably, you know, that tempts into a broader theme generally, which is somebody's going to get a better deal th- out of this than me. You know, you know, politicians are always going to look out for themselves. Um, that's probably, you know, that's not a new complaint that voters have. Um, but that said, it is, you know, it's the reality sort of going into this that the people's default is this is going to be good for the wealthy, bad for me. That's the opposite of what I want. Yeah. And even if people want to change the tax code, they may, you know, they may not be excited about the changes that are being laid out. Right. And so I think what, you know, the, the thing that Republicans and Trump, well, the one, the thing Republicans have going for them on this is that far more than on healthcare and other issues, this is one of those issues that like all Republicans in some way, shape or form actually do agree on. Like it may have been the case that, you know, you could say, well, all Republicans agreed on repealing Obamacare, but like that's, that was never actually really the case. It was like a, a talking point. But as we saw with the various zombie ahakas and zombie bikras, like that was never really the case. Um, and you could see that again in certain polls about, you know, well, do you think we should change the pre-existing condition stuff? And you'd have Republicans going, well, no, 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 don't change that. Um, so what I wonder is on taxes, you think, okay, this is another one of those issues that almost all Republicans theoretically, you know, do you believe that we should cut taxes? Like most Republicans are going to say yes to that question. But when you start getting into the nitty gritty of like, well, what if the, you know, the top rate gets brought down and the bottom rate gets brought up from, I think the, the current poll or the current plan takes the bottom rate from like 10 to 12%. And it does a lot of things where it's increasing certain deductions. So that's kind of how it's argued that it's not actually raising taxes, but you know, it is technically changing the bottom rate from 10 to 12. And at the moment, changing the top rate from 39.6 to 35. But I, I think there's like, they can add something else. Anyhow, I'm not going to get into tax policy stuff because we're pollsters and I'm going to screw it up if I go too deep in the policy. Point being, is there Republican consensus that if you raised the bottom rate and you cut the top rate, that that's a good thing? And I don't know. You've seen agreement from Heritage and like the think tanks and, you know, the various groups that sometimes can be thorns in the side of congressional leadership the Freedom Caucus, et cetera, they are all playing ball. Everybody seems to be singing from the same hymnal on this. But it's one of those things where, like, they I feel like they kind of need to move fast because you do see poll numbers where even Republicans are like, eh, I'm a little worried this is just going to benefit super rich people. And, like, I deserve a tax cut. How's this going to affect me? And um, so, you know, that will be, a, I think, a complicating factor um, and it's just going to be hard for pollsters to get out there and really 
gauge how people will think about this policy both before and after it passes because before it passes it's so complicated like how do you describe something that is so comprehensive okay well it's going to do this with the child tax credit and it's going to do this with the deductions but it's going to keep these deductions but get rid of these and if you're in certain states you won't be able to deduct your state taxes but you will be able to keep your mortgage like it's just totally cuckoo and complicated um on the other hand you know, after the fact, I guess you could poll people and say, do you think your taxes went up or down as a result of this? And, you know, if people's taxes went up, presumably they will not be pleased with the president and not be pleased with Republicans in Congress. But I mean, that's kind of an after the fact uh, poll question rather than one you can do ahead right. of time. Right. I mean, the, the the challenge with the reality and simply polling the reality is you know, it's complicated. It's tough for people to keep track of the ins and outs of the policy debate as, you know, as you'd expect. I mean, it's, it is complicated, even if you're trying to pay close attention. And then on top of that, you know, one of the lessons from the healthcare debate is if you are not providing people with a lot of information about what's in your plan, then what do, how do people respond? They're not going to typically respond well. They're going to just assume you're hiding something or fill in the blank with, you know, their own preconceived notion of what you're, what you might be up to. And if we're in that, if we, you know, if Republicans kind of go down that road again with tax reform as they kind of did with healthcare, does that mean that people will then say, well, I'm just going to go with what I thought was going to happen before they even release the plan, which is I assumed that it would benefit uh, the rich and not me and, you know, and I'm angry about that. Yeah. Well, the other big issue in addition to tax reform was the NFL and uh, not a ton of polling out there on it, but our buddies at the Cato Institute and a uh, friend of the show, Emily Eakins, had dug into this question in some free speech polling um, that Cato had done and really interesting findings on on this one particular question. They asked do you think an NFL player should be fired from the team if they refuse to stand for the national anthem before football games to make a political statement? So you've got a couple things going on here. You've got standing in the national anthem. Um, you've got to make a political statement, but it doesn't specify what that statement's about. So it doesn't necessarily say to make a political statement about Black Lives Matter, to make a political statement about opposing Trump, to make a political statement about um uh, police, police treatment of African-Americans, police, you know, and I think it's good that the question doesn't ask that because frankly, at this point, you know, I think it means different things to different players. Um, but nonetheless, this is specifically, it's not saying should they stand or should they kneel? It's saying, should they be fired if they refuse to stand for the national anthem in order to make a political statement? Um, 61% of folks in this poll, which again was taken prior to the latest kerfluffle, um, said that you should not be fired if you refuse to stand. 38% say you should. Um, among Republicans, by a two-to-one margin, they say, yes, you should be fired if you refuse to stand. Among Democrats, by a four-to-one margin, you should not be fired. Um, independents look a lot more like Democrats on this question. It's one of those ones where uh, Republicans, uh, majority of Republicans are not in line with the majority of the rest of the country. Um, However, again, remember, this is a, on the question of should you be fired, not do I right. agree with them for, you know, should they stand or should they sit? It's 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 like the harsher question. Um, but what sort of, you know, makes me uh, 
laugh is certainly not the right word, but when you look at the cross tabs on this, you know, younger respondents by a 71 to 28 margin say, no, don't fire them. But as you move older and older and older, by the time you hit the baby boomers, the numbers are looking pretty even. And for senior citizens, 65 and up, it's 57% say, yes, you should fire them. Um, and you see the yeah. same kind I wonder of if you know, gradations. The party differences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and you see the same kind of gradations from city to suburb to town to rural where the numbers shift and like, you know, the increase in yes, fire them like that goes up as you get less dense. Uh, same thing with education level. You know, as you go from high school or less up to post grad, you get more people saying, no, 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 they shouldn't be fired as you move up the education scale. So in some ways, a lot of the demographic stuff does kind of exactly what you'd think. I think maybe the only surprise is that on the race breakout on this question, um, Hispanic respondents look a lot more like white respondents than black respondents. Um, so it's it's one of those things where the divide of, you know, white and black respondents do not look the same on this question. Um, even though a majority of white respondents do say, no, they shouldn't be fired. But there's very little difference between white and Hispanic respondents, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, you know, Huffington Post, uh, YouGov, Ariel Edwards-Levy released a poll, like, you know, 10 minutes before we got on the phone. And it's just on the NFL stuff. And it, it is very similar to what this found, even down to the... um you know, uh, Hispanics being somewhere between where white voters are and where black voters are, not, you know, just it, it's sort of a, you know, a plurality of Hispanics, for example, think it's inappropriate for NFL players to kneel 60 percent of white voters, 7 um, percent of black voters say it's inappropriate. So, the you know, real differences there. Um, and they found something similar to what the Cato poll found, which is there are different responses to different ways you ask the question. That is very sensitive to a question warning. People can find it an inappropriate form of protest, but still not feel that the um, that players should be fired. Um, they can also, you know, disagree with uh, how Trump's handled it uh, and and getting involved with it. Or they can also, you know, not really think it's a big issue that you know that's not the most important issue right now. So you know, the, you can you know, a lot of voters have a variety of those potentially seemingly contradictory opinions, but actually are very able to hold them in the, you know, hold them together at the same time. Um, and so it, you know, we'll link to it in the show notes. It's, it, um, it's quite interesting. What I thought was particularly to your point of the protest meeting different things for different people, um, just under half uh, said protesting against police violence is what the NFL players are mostly protesting. 48% said police violence. 40% said protesting against Trump. 12% against the flag. 19% something else. And 19% not sure. So that's, you know, that's quite a bit of division uh, as to whether or not, you know, as to what people think the driving motivation is, which I think is, you know, is interesting and potentially part of you know, where some of the controversy is coming from. Um, and, uh, you know, what we'll also bounced around the internet, which I found pretty interesting, was going back to uh, data from the 60s from Gallup. Yeah, this, this was, was really interesting. Yes. And so do you approve or disapprove of what the Freedom Riders are doing? This is from 1961, and 61% said disapprove. Um, and then do you think sit-ins at lunch counters or freedom buses and other demonstrations by Negroes will hurt or help the Negroes' chances of being integrated in the South, 57% said hurt. Again, this is 1961. Um, 
I think that's really fascinating. And it goes to this point for folks who are, you know, studying and talking about this, which is, um, you know, you don't need to approve of the form of protest. And um, the protest itself is, is something that, you know, the person protesting can decide what to do, especially when we're talking about, you know, a peaceful protest. And so when you have comments like, well, at work, you should be doing something differently, you know, that you don't have that right at work. Um, or, well, you know, these are people who are wealthy, so therefore somehow their right to protest is different. Um, you know, those kinds of arguments, you know, tap into something, you know, very similar to these 1960s polling data, which is, um, you know, people finding it, you know, uh, unhelpful or inappropriate or not right for uh, for folks to protest. Um, you know, the, the you know, very consistent finding among uh, black voters, and there was another poll that came out this past week, that, you know, things are not, you know, it's not a good time to be black in America right now, that there are, you know, there are a lot of, uh, a lot of challenges in the culture and not just the culture, but systemically that are, you know, that are, are worth standing up for and, and protesting. Well, so issues of race and ethnicity are not confined to the United States and have popped up in the headlines with this week's elections in Germany. So, uh, sort of moving into our next section, we talked uh, at the beginning of the show how we were going to go a little global. Um, this past weekend, elections in Germany, uh, you have the the CDU, the Christian Democrats, which is Angela Merkel's party, um, the Social Democrats, uh, which is, you know, it's kind of the center-left, center-right parties that have, have been in charge in Germany uh, for the last number of decades. Uh, they, uh, the polls, first of all, in Germany sort of were, were almost right on the money um, of how the election would turn out. So uh, Angela Merkel, her party did come out victorious. She will need to form a coalition. She will, uh, you know, it doesn't, I do not believe we'll be able to just govern on her own. And so you kind of got to figure out what parties will she form a coalition with. Um, but in the election, the final polling, uh, you know, numbers, uh, and I'm going to just absolutely butcher the pronunciation of some of these pollsters, Fortune's group of, I'm no, I'm not even gonna try it. I thought I would try it and then I started and I'm not going to. Uh, nonetheless, there are a bunch of pollsters that showed Merkel's party would probably get about the mid thirties. Um, in the end, she received 32.9% of the vote. So very slightly underperformed the public polls. Um, SPD, the social Democrats, most polls showed them getting in kind of the low twenties. They wound up with 20.5%. Uh, so again, slightly lower. But I mean, when I say slightly, we're talking a point, a point and a half. Again, this is well within margin of error and not this in no way, shape or form comes even close to counting as a polling miss. Um, and then those extra points wind up sort of landing in the lap of parties like, uh, you know, the the Greens, the left, uh, but specifically um, AFD, Alternative for Deutschland, it's the very far right party that uh, sort of, you know, some have called them a neo-Nazi party. Uh, there's, there is dissent within that party, by the way, about the extent to which they embrace those sorts of elements. And in fact, one of the, I guess, if you can say the more moderate leader of the far right party, like left the party the day after the election and it was a whole thing. Um, but certainly a lot of folks were taken aback by the showing that the AFD received coming in third place, getting 12.6% of the vote. They will be in parliament. Um, and the question I think Merkel now has is like, do you have to form a government with them? Do you form a government with the kind of 
libertarians and the greens? Like, what do you do? How do you, how do you form a government now? Um, and you know, now with this very far right party actually being in the parliament, what does that mean for Germany? So very interesting stuff. If you are a lover of international elections, like I am, but big thumbs up for pollsters, like Forza, GMS, YouGov. I'm like looking at this list of, of firms that did polls in the closing week or two of the election. The, the polls were very close to one another, um, no real outliers, and they were all pretty darn close to the result. So congratulations, German pollsters. You guys got it right. But the uh, so the German elections were not the only sort of international political environment thing I've been focused on. So uh, as you guys may have noticed, I have was gone for the last few weeks. Uh, and I was gone. I was in China, um, which China, Marjorie, is a place that you have been. Uh, you've been to Beijing. Yes, I went um, on my honeymoon. Yes, I went for my honeymoon. So so was it a good honeymoon destination? Because, I mean, I, I enjoyed going, but well, I did not get like a like a romantic vibe it's, when No, I was it's there. not a honeymoon. <laughs> it's not. So we went to Beijing, Bali, and Cambodia. And, you know, we wanted, I mean... You know, we wanted to find a good, I mean, we wanted reward travel that we can go direct. <laughs> so that was, that was how we ended up in Beijing. But it, we, it, we found it, I mean, it was a, it's a good place to kind of, you know, crash and have your sort of, you know, immediate kind of like interesting, you know, one, the amenities you want when you're on your honeymoon. Plus there was obviously lots of really cool stuff to do. We went to go to the Great Wall, not like the Great Wall place that's close to Beijing that is, like the super touristy one there's like a very far there's nobody there there's you know it's uh like the the little um like the tram thing that you take is you know looks a little rusty you know we did that (laughs) uh great wall trip it was really fantastic so anyway we so it was a good place it's definitely not like the most honeymoony of our three destinations but we we enjoyed it nonetheless well, I really enjoyed being over in China. It was very it was very eye-opening for me because having never been before in my mind, you know, on the one hand, like you see pictures of Shanghai, like there are, you know, a, an Apple screensaver, like you see pictures of this, in, you know, incredible skyline. And, um, and yet I think in my mind, being a, a fairly liberty-minded person, like in my mind, I assumed, okay, I already know before I go, like I'm not going to be able to check my email because the government shuts all this stuff down. And like, I think on the spectrum of, you know, libertarian paradise to North Korea, I wasn't quite sure what my China experience would be. And um, it also varies, I think, based on where you are in the country. So we started in Shanghai, then we went out to a more rural area, and then we ended in Beijing. And I mean, it's just this incredibly uh, diverse and complicated and beautiful country, and the food was amazing. Um, but one thing that I was really fascinated by when I was there is uh, being an American and Westerner, I mean, I love me some free speech and I love like free access to information and transparency and I don't want the government telling me what to do. And and I sort of assumed, you know, I'll go over there and I'll talk to some people and, you know, maybe I'll sense like some agitation, like, man, I think it's terrible. The government doesn't let me use Facebook or, you know, things like that. Um, and I was really taken aback by how so many young people in China um, don't actually seem to be bothered by that sort of thing um, at all. That like the booming economy in China has made this generation, which in China, they don't call them millennials. They call them like the post 90s generation. And also because of population size, like 
the number of people born in China in the 80s and 90s is like the size of the U.S. population. It's just enormous. Um, but the, a lot of the things that you hear people, tr you know, try to say that U.S. millennials are, that like the stereotype doesn't actually fit. Like a lot of those words actually do fit for young people in China, like very confident, almost to the point of like being cocky, like we're going to, we're going to own the world. Like our economy has been growing at such an enormous rate. And like, like our country is awesome. And, you know, we're very optimistic, I, you know, so I took a look at a lot of polling and you can find that like the proportion of young people in China who think that the next year is going to be better for them than the last is just like through the roof. And, um, but also there's a really interesting poll conducted by, and I, this was my column at the Washington Examiner this week. Um, like Deloitte has an interesting poll of global millennials. Um, J. Walter Thompson uh, consultancy has a good poll about this. But it actually does turn out that at the same time that young people in China are among the most optimistic and confident around the world, they are also the least concerned about free speech. Like only if something like 32% of young people in China think that free speech is important. So it was just very eye-opening for me as a Westerner to be like, huh, like I always assumed that if you didn't have these freedoms that you would be miserable um, and you'd be really angry about it. And it turns out if the economy is doing well, that can, uh, that can cover for a lot of things. So very interesting trip. I'm so thankful that I got a chance to go. Um, and, uh, it was just, it, it really, uh, changed my perspective on, on, on a number of things and, uh, also made me appreciate a lot of the freedoms I have back here at home. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Where, you know, we can feel free to email each other about what time we're going to record and no one will read them. <laughs> Our very <laughs> private emails. <laughs> well, I will say, Marjorie, the, the phone that I'm talking to you on right now, I did take with me to China. I wiped it when I got back, but uh, I'm still not confident. <laughs> I'm totally in the clear. So. I mean, it, it, to be honest, it kind of does sound like somebody is tapping this call. <laughs> now, that I, now that I think about it. <laughs> the, the only thing I know how to say in Chinese, by the way, I can say hello. I can say thank you. And I can say, uh, where is the bathroom? Which, oh, now I'm forgetting it. I think it was something like, Shisho Tian Zai Nar. But of course, oh, I can ask good. where the bathroom is. But I don't know how to like interpret what you say back to me. Like if you start right. telling well, me where the bathroom is in Chinese, I'm like, I you're have like, a clue right, what you're actually, saying. I so. need you to, I need you to write that on a card for me. Okay. <laughs> can you well, point? Well, a start. You You'll have to it? go back. That's right. Although, That's of course, good. in Shanghai, um, like everything's also in English. Like I, I was like, I really want to go get a coffee because I'm all jet lagged. What is China's version of Starbucks? And our guide was like, it's Starbucks. So I was like, okay, so I will go to Starbucks. So I walk into a Starbucks in Shanghai and I'm all like, oh no, I don't know how to order an iced mocha in Chinese. And I'm looking at the menu and I'm like, oh no, what am I going to do? And the lady, and I'm like, um, uh, like I'm trying to like kind of point awkwardly, like the total idiot American. And the lady behind the counter is like, what do you want? <laughs> in like English back to me, like, oh, <laughs> yes, I'm dumb. You guys are smart. And you have an education that teaches you English here. And uh, so great. This is going to be fine. <laughs> I'm a moron. That's funny. I'm very sorry. So I was able to be fully caffeinated. Uh, and Starbucks in China is awesome. So there you go. As a universal <laughs> language. The universal language yes, of Starbucks. I speak Star. I speak Starbucks. <laughs> yes. I did not order a pumpkin spice latte 
while he was oh, well, there. That's, that's a mercy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know if that's the universal right. language. They You'll did fight for that freedom. Cake. You'll fight for yeah. that freedom till the end. <laughs> they did. I guess there's the mid-autumn festival in China where mooncakes are a popular treat. I did have a red bean scone, which you cannot find at American Starbucks, and it was pretty good. Um, but oh, yeah. That so good. anyhow, I won't bore our listeners with my reflections on China Starbucks, but uh, it was a cool trip. I recommend it. I mean, especially Shanghai. Shanghai is like unreal. You feel like you're in the future. It's like Blade Runner, but not dystopian. I don't know. Shanghai is very cool. That's good. Well, cool. Well, um, we have some interesting data that might help. This comes from Pew. That might be part the key to people being more in favor of science in the future. And that is crime dramas. I just love, I don't know whose idea this was. This is just such a great topic of a survey um, where they asked people about their favorability toward um, how they felt about science and technology and medicine. So sort of STEM, uh, STEM topics. And they looked at that by people who watch criminal investigation shows or hospital procedural shows or science fiction shows. And they found that people who are frequent viewers of these shows may in fact be more favorable toward some of these kinds of, you know, some of these kinds of industries and their understanding. They think that this actually helps people's understanding of these industries. I thought that's, I mean, that is just kudos to whoever came up with that. I think it's such a great, interesting topic. Although I did have one question and maybe I just didn't dig far enough into this, but is it, do we know which way the causality arrow is pointing, right? Is it that people like scientists more because they watched Star Trek and they were like, oh, science is great. Or did they already think science was great and that's why they went and watched, you know, Star Trek or Battlestar Galactica or Grey's Anatomy or whatever. I mean, so that I think that was my only question was, is it that, like, I think the medical profession is cooler because I watched the first three seasons of Grey's Anatomy or did I already think? think the medical profession was cool and that's why i watched first that's not why i watched the first three seasons of grace anatomy let's be honest um but you know <laughs> which way does the which way does the arrow point i don't know right i mean so if you just force people to watch you know law and order does it make you more you know more interested in science and more like whatever that gal's name who ran the morgue you know um i don't know i don't know the answer to that um but it seems like a good start or at least a good something, right? A good argument for more diversity in the kinds of topics that we have in entertainment and, you know, showing role models and all that kind of stuff. Well, so last but not least, we have um, a kind of a, a <laughs> again, goofy is not the right word. I'm having trouble coming up with the right words for things this, this episode. I'm going to blame it on the jet lag. Uh, jet lag is serious. Yeah. It's it's a it's a story that popped into my feed and I I thought it was pretty f- uh, amusing and relevant given my travels. So it's an analysis of data from a Chinese dating app uh, that popped up in the South China Morning Post. Um, it is a uh, a dating app called uh, I don't, do, Am I even going to pronounce this correctly? Jenai? Maybe. Jenai. That's saying sure. I think that's a good, it's a good shot. Yeah, that's a good shot. 
we're going to roll with it. Um, basically, a, it, it's, it is a dating platform in China, and uh, it lets you kind of send digital winks to people. And they basically found that for that there is a, a direct correlation between how much money a man is earning and how many winks he gets from women on the platform and then finds that for women uh, there isn't as much of a relationship unless they're making over a certain amount of money, in which case the number of winks tails off. So like women want men with lots of money and men don't really care unless a woman is making too much money and then they don't like her. All of which was incredibly depressing findings. Uh, but also it's just like madness that they have the data to like prove these like unpleasant stereotypes about how men and women behave in romantic settings. Yeah. You know, we've, I mean, I've seen, there's been research on this and I've seen it in some other podcasts I've talked about dating sites is when you have people making these quick decisions based on whatever information they have online, they are, you know, they're ignoring some of the, the like spontaneity of what you might be attracted to if you're meeting someone in person and instead you're looking at you know whatever your other kinds of biases or prejudices or conclusions you may draw and you can see that here with the with the income data what i thought aside from that what was interesting about this is they they have a matchmaker some you know that seems like the site has like a matchmaker where you can you know manage expectations and solve misunderstandings and ask like a, be a middle person to ask embarrassing questions for example like will they will, you know if you want to ask the have the matchmaker ask whether or not you'll manage the finances collectively or whether you know the woman will need to live with her in-laws like these are the questions that you have the matchmaker ask sort of up front which seems i mean that's a very big cultural difference like let's decide how we're going to manage finances or whether or not you have to live with the in-laws those are things that you know people should discuss before they get married but you know you could argue that maybe you don't need to discuss that before your you know date early on but it, it was quite, it was quite a, I thought it was quite a fascinating tidbit here. So Margie, what did we learn this week? Well, pollsters take about one more time, I guess. We're done with the strange jokes and just back to just more jokes now for a while. Trump's numbers aren't getting worse, but that doesn't mean they're particularly good. And how do you feel about a thing you don't know anything about? Do you feel good about it or do you feel bad about it? And, you know, it said that this matchmaking site, they have, they have, uh, they're generating 1.5 billion yuan in revenue. And I think that's how much my husband would spend for an app that handles all of my questions and calendar invites that I send him every day. Um, and there are not many things that would be cooler than Law & Order, the pollsters. But we are going to try to top that and announce some um, in the next couple weeks. We're not announcing a reality show at this point, unfortunately. But stay no. tuned because it's pretty cool news. Well, well, I think, with, you know, I think it's going to be actually better than a reality show or Law and Order, The Pollster. I feel but like we'll, you and I would be it, decent reality stars, and I mean that in a non-insulting way. Like in a, <laughs> you know, like, 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 a, like a group that you would enjoy watching on HGTV, not like in a full-on Kardashian kind of way. I feel like we yeah, would make a yeah. good reality TV show. Yeah, but, but I don't you gotta have the kinda, energy you know, for that. Yeah, no, I think, right, definitely, um... <laughs> 
I don't, I don't think I want my parenting on quite such full view. <laughs> That's my, one Network, of my first concerns. If you're listening and you think you can cook up something that would be a fun Margie and Kristen reality show, let us know. Price is right. We'll talk. We'll have your people, have your people call our people because we have people. That's right. But, uh. That's right. <laughs> We have the great people. It's basically Twitter DM, but yeah. (laughs) But speaking of Twitter, you can find us on Twitter at at the pollsters or individually at at Margie O'Mara and at Kay Soltis-Anderson. Find us on Facebook where we post links throughout the week to the stories that we think are fascinating. And we're also at www.thepolsters.com. Make sure you subscribe to our show, especially if you're a new listener. Click that subscribe button. Leave a review. Let us know what you think. Tell your friends. We love to hear from you. Great. Thanks. Bye.